1: You're listening to a special broadcast here on VPM News.
2: Election day is just over two weeks away, but it's been on the minds of many Virginians for months. Preparing to cast a ballot is very different this year.
3: We've been recruiting, 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 building up to the fall election this year. The VPM News team is doing all they can to safely bring you the stories of poll workers.
0: I know my little one is very excited to come visit, to see Mama in action, so to the extent that
4: she can.
2: (laughs) Questioning candidates on the decisions they'll make that will affect you every day.
4: When he's had the option to vote to protect people with preexisting conditions, he has voted against protecting them.
3: And exploring how calls for criminal justice reform will play into voters' decisions.
2: I was remiss if I didn't say, where were you back in 2018? As we await what Virginia decides, VPM News is staying connected to the stories that matter now.
3: This special broadcast was recorded Friday, October 16th. I'm Benjamin Dolly. And I'm Phil Lyles. While you may know Ben and I don't always get to be together for a show, but the 2020 general election is bringing us together For a special broadcast with VPM News.
2: Our news team is keeping track of local and congressional races throughout Central Virginia. Our journalists are either working from their own homes or doing all they can to safely report from the field.
3: Instead of the horse race or reporting on opinion polls, something different that VPM News did this year to cover the election was ask Virginians one simple question. What do you want the candidates to talk about as they compete for votes.
2: Around 350 people replied to our Citizens Agenda election survey, and we developed a number of stories based on questions people had. One concern many raised was about absentee voting. How would it be secure, and would candidates make sure it's safe?
3: While there's no research showing widespread voter fraud, some are still very uneasy about mailing ballots. These fears were stoked recently after a number of mailboxes were tampered with in Central Virginia. The U.S. Postal Service is still investigating what happened and for the moment it's not clear what mail may have been affected. Patrick Larson has been following that story and recently spoke with Whitney Evans about a number of big changes with early voting this year in the Commonwealth. Hi Patrick. Hi Whitney.
4: Patrick, a lot of people have already voted this year or are in the process of doing so and I'll just start by asking what's different?
5: Well, Obviously, the biggest difference is coronavirus, and that's led to a series of changes at the state level to accommodate. I spoke with Elections Commissioner Chris Piper last week. He says asking people to vote as normal would be asking them to risk their health.
6: And that's simply not um, something that Virginia wants to
5: do. When the pandemic hit, officials scrambled to make mail-in voting more accessible. For instance, a court decision this summer waived a rule requiring voters to fill out their ballot in the presence of a witness... And the General Assembly during the ongoing special session paved the way for registrars to open absentee drop boxes and extended the deadline for mail-in ballots. Lawmakers actually started loosening absentee ballot policies before the pandemic. Uh, For instance, because of a new law passed earlier this year, voters no longer have to identify a reason or an excuse to vote absentee. Voter registration has generally become more accessible as well. The point is, it's easier to get your hands on a ballot.
4: But some people weren't happy with those changes, right?
5: Right. There are worries about potential fraud and ballot harvesting, which is when third-party groups collect and deliver ballots instead of voters themselves. Of course, the president and his supporters continue to rally against mail-in voting for those reasons.
4: We should note that studies show there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud nationally. While research shows these fears are mostly unfounded, some still have anxiety around mail-in voting. There's reason for voters to be a little bit squeamish.
5: Well, there have already been some hiccups this year. According to recent reports, almost 2,000 voters in the Commonwealth, including those in Richmond and Henrico, were sent two mail-in ballots due to some printing mishaps. But election officials have assured that safeguards are in place to make sure someone can't vote twice. There's a verification system that would reject the second ballot.
4: There's also fear of ballots arriving late and not getting counted. Looking back during the presidential primaries, more than 5 percent of mail-in ballots in Virginia were rejected because they arrived late. Since then, the U.S. Postal Service has been scrutinized for policy changes that would slow delivery. Can the state do anything to ensure that doesn't happen again?
5: Like I mentioned earlier, Democrats passed a bill this year that extends the deadline for returning ballots in the mail. So now, as long as a ballot is postmarked by Election Day and reaches the registrar by that Friday at noon, it'll still be counted. And interestingly, voters have to get their ballot requests in sooner this year. Commissioner Piper told me that the previous deadline was too close to Election Day.
6: Uh, What we found was that if somebody had requested seven days prior to the election, There simply wasn't enough time for the local offices to process
5: that request. So late ballots shouldn't be as common in Virginia this time, but the Department of Elections website warns voters that ballots could take up to five days in the mail. That's longer than the three-day grace period, and the changes also mean that it could take much longer to get results.
4: So what about the cost of all these changes? Where is Virginia getting the money from?
5: So the Commonwealth got about $9 million from the Federal CARES Act. Uh, They spent that on protection equipment for elections workers. They also sent some to localities to spend as needed on new staff and equipment. And the rest was actually spent on an educational advertising campaign on absentee voting. Here's Piper on that effort.
6: About 6% of the turnout of the 2016 election voted by mail. Uh, We anticipated that number to go way up. And so it's a new process for for many of our
5: voters. House Democrats also passed a standalone budget bill back in August appropriating funds for all that extra postage.
4: All right, so maybe now's a good time to help our listeners out. A lot of this information is kind of confusing. They have a lot of options. Um, So let's say that I want to vote absentee what exactly do I need to do?
5: So the first thing you'll need to do is check your voter registration, which you can do on the Department of Elections website. Next, you have to apply for your absentee ballot either online or in person. The deadline this year is October 23rd, although if you go to your registrar's office, you can fill it out in person until Halloween. And you can find more details about these deadlines on our website, vpm.org elections.
4: What if I've changed my mind? Let's say I don't feel comfortable using the mail. Can I still vote in person even though I already have a ballot?
5: This is actually something that Richmond Registrar Kirk Showalter mentioned. She expects so many voters to change their minds that she's planning on ordering more ballots. So yes, you can switch. Just bring your ballot back to your registrar or your polling place unmarked and in its envelope. And if you've lost your ballot, you can get a provisional one at the polls, which will be counted once election officials have confirmed that your original ballot was not returned.
4: Let's say I've already returned my ballot. How can I know it's been counted?
5: So your registrar should mark your ballot as returned in the Virginia voter system when they get it. You can check that on your voter registration page. There's also a new rule as of this summer requiring registrars to notify voters if anything's missing from their ballots. If that happened, you'd get an opportunity to fix it or
2: cast a provisional ballot instead. Thank you, Patrick and Whitney. For more information about how to vote absentee and important deadlines to remember, check out our voter guide at vpm.org elections.
3: Due to the pandemic, many traditional poll workers have opted out because their age puts them in a high risk category of potentially catching COVID-19. In Chesterfield County, efforts to recruit poll workers have been underway for months.
2: Ian Stewart reports on the county's outreach to hire them and what it takes to be on the front lines in a pandemic on November 3rd.
1: Like many people across the country, North Chesterfield County parents Shakir and Dana Turton have had to learn how to juggle. Both telework at home. Dana hunkers down at the kitchen table while Shakir sequesters himself upstairs in a loft. Both are at the ready to help their daughter, Sloan, who's in her room, log on to virtual kindergarten.
0: So we do a lot of popping up, um, popping up and down as we need to.
1: Dana, who's 43, works as an administrative assistant at VCU Medical School. She says VCU is giving employees November 3rd off to vote, and Sloan's also off from school. Because her husband is working from home, Dana decided it would be okay to sign up to be a poll worker on election day.
0: So being able to say, yes, I can do a 5 a.m. arrival time without having to organize child care has certainly helped.
1: Dana says her desire to help is driven by past experiences at her polling site. She says the people working have always been organized and efficient, especially when it comes to handling her ballot.
0: I've always noticed that they really are good about saying, okay, let's be sure to put it in your folder so nobody else is seeing it.
1: Plus, she says they've always been friendly to Sloan.
0: I've had a little one with me, I think, every time i voted since she was born, and they've always been very patient giving her a sticker, so that's been important.
1: Back in 2016, roughly 675 people worked the polls for the presidential election in Chesterfield County. That's according to a survey conducted this year by the Election Data and Science Lab at MIT with the organization Democracy Works. For this presidential election, Chesterfield Registrar Constance Hardgrove practically doubled that effort to 1,200 workers. Earlier this year, Hardgrove said,
3: We've been recruiting, 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 building up to the fall election this year. I had heard that, particularly with COVID,
1: Here's Dana again.
0: And people who are maybe the 65 and older, which I know a lot of people tend to be, who do the polls, um, that they were potentially facing a shortage.
1: So to recruit people to work the polls, the county launched an aggressive campaign to be staffed for early in-person and Election Day voting. County officials increased the daily pay for poll workers from $150 to $250, and they expanded their advertising to include social media, radio ads, and electronic billboards. Hardgrove says their goal of hiring 1,200 workers was met, and in fact, they had over 2,500 people apply. To prepare each polling site to follow CDC guidelines, Hardgrove says Federal Cares Act funding is paying for essential equipment, including sneeze guards, gloves, masks, and cleaning supplies.
4: We Are practicing social distancing as much as possible, um, following the CDC guidelines, wiping down the voting booths and um, equipment throughout the day.
1: The county has also moved training online. Dana says she's not too worried about working the polls. She says she and her family are regular mask wearers, so it should be easy to wear one all day.
0: Felt like that's something I could do because it sounds like the county is making sure that there will be distanced spaces and masks and everything like that.
1: Dana says she's ready for November 3rd, and so is her daughter Sloan.
0: I know my little one is very excited to come visit to see Mama in action. So to the extent that she can (laughs) uh, safely, she definitely wants to come to voting day, as she likes to call it.
1: Starting on Monday, the county is opening four satellite locations, including one at North Courthouse Library, where Dana will be stationed and voting on Election Day. Ian Stewart, VPM News.
3: Going into the final weeks of the campaign, pollsters in Virginia are giving Joe Biden a clear lead. But are they right? Charles Fishburn reports.
7: Some national polls got it wrong in 2016, but in Virginia, Wasson was on target.
0: Our final poll showed Clinton ahead of Trump by six points. She won by five.
7: Wasson Poll Research Director Rebecca Bromley-Trujillo says their 2020 poll shows Trump will lose Virginia again.
0: Our September 24th poll showed Biden ahead of Trump by five
4: points.
7: VCU's Wilder poll has been tracking the Trump-Biden matchup all year.
4: What we've seen is a, a movement towards Joe Biden.
7: Poll director Farrah Stone says in their September poll, Biden was ahead by 14. But Bromley Trujillo says people are wary.
0: Because a lot of people were wrong about 2016.
7: Not in Virginia. Of 91 polls, there were only five misses. Even so, Wasson added a question on educational levels, and the Wilder poll wants to know something else.
4: Whether their vote choice is a vote for the candidate they're choosing or against the opposing candidate.
7: VCU plans a final Wilder poll late this month. Charles Fishburn,
3: VPM News. A prominent issue in this year's Richmond mayoral race is how the candidates have responded to ongoing calls for police reform and protests that rocked the city over the summer. Whitney Evans takes a look at how those candidates differ.
4: It was June 1st, a day after protesters set fires and damaged businesses in downtown Richmond in response to the death of George Floyd. With the sun still beaming down roughly 20 minutes before a city imposed 8 p.m. curfew, Richmond police deployed clouds of tear gas on protesters who were gathered at the Robert E. Lee Monument. The incident was widely panned. Mayor Lavar Stoney apologized the following day.
2: I can't stand here today and give you every single answer. But
7: all I can do is commit to you that such a thing will never happen
4: again. The gassing was a signifier of the days and months to come, in which tear gas and rubber bullets would be commonplace. Numerous unlawful assemblies would be declared and protesters arrested. The incident also signified the beginning of Alexis Rogers' campaign for mayor.
0: And I regret that this mayor and even some of my opponents only recently have determined that it's okay to examine ways to change our police in the city of Richmond.
4: Rogers was speaking at a mayoral debate hosted by 8 News, W.R.I.C. and Virginia Union University. She's promised that if elected mayor, she would reduce the scope and scale of Richmond police, which would include moving funds away from the department and toward mental health and substance abuse programs. She wants a civilian oversight board with subpoena power which is the authority to force witnesses to testify or provide evidence. And officers who misuse their power, Rogers said during a VPM NBC 12 forum, should be publicly named.
0: The same way, unfortunately, we've seen protesters get named before they're even convicted of a crime. Police officers, if they're uh, being investigated, should be named so the public can be aware and that we can hold the Police department accountable.
4: Campaign volunteer Andrew Bretton says Rogers is the only mayoral candidate taking police reform seriously.
6: Even the mayor, who, you know, in many ways has, you know, used progressive language around the need for new policing, did nothing to actually bring about true accountability to the system.
4: But according to the most recent poll, Stoney leads the race with the same level of citywide support he had as a first-time candidate. The poll, which was conducted by the Wasson Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University and the Richmond Times Dispatch, shows that Rogers is tied for second place with City Councilwoman Kim Gray. Justin Griffin and Tracy McLean came in third and fourth place, respectively. This is motivating Breton and other volunteers.
6: We kind of feel like we're the underdog, right? So that kind of makes it exciting. It
5: feels like it's important.
4: Councilwoman Gray is widely billed as a law and order candidate. She's criticized some of the tactics used by protesters and fervently called for those who destroyed property to be prosecuted. During the VPM and NBC12 forum, Gray promised voters integrity. We have a mayor who will say one thing to the police in one room and encourage protesters in the next breath and then tear gas protesters in the third breath. So we have a lack of integrity in our leadership in our city. Back in July, the city council voted seven to two against a resolution to examine the police department's budget for money that could be moved elsewhere. Gray said she wasn't prepared to meddle with the budget during an economic crisis brought on by COVID-19. She did, however, endorse a measure setting up the creation of a civilian review board. But she's hesitant to give the group subpoena power because it could jeopardize public safety. Again, here's Gray at VUU. We always have to work in the interest of public safety and protecting informants and individuals who work in our public safety arena. Pierce Homer, a former state secretary of transportation for two governors, says he respects Gray and believes she's sensitive to the Black Lives Matter movement and racial equality.
1: But when people take advantage of that and use that as an opportunity to destroy small black businesses, she's going to stand up for them, and she did.
4: Protesters have argued the police department escalated violence by using less lethal force against them and declarations of unlawful assembly to silence free speech. Mayor Stoney has stood behind the department in its efforts to curb unrest in the city. Here he is during the VUU debate.
7: I've always felt that I've been sort of caught, caught in the middle as a, as a black man, but also the chief executive of a, a municipal government.
4: Stoney maintains he's made headway on police reform.
7: We have a new leader at the top of Richmond Police Department in Gerald Smith out of Charlotte. He's a change agent and a reformer. Uh, also, we have a, a task force made of community leaders and experts and academics. Uh, who are focused on reimagining and reforming the way
1: we police?
4: Stoney also has the support of the state's top elected official.
1: Lavar has been a leader, he's a listener, he takes action.
4: Governor Ralph Northam announced last month that he was endorsing Stoney. Northam said the city is more progressive, more innovative, and more inclusive under Stoney's leadership but the mayor's race hinges on community trust, not just high-profile endorsements. And trust is hard to come by for many activists who called for change long before a Minneapolis police officer pinned George Floyd to the ground in a deadly chokehold. Princess Blanding still wants justice for the death of her brother, Marcus David Peters, who was shot dead by Richmond police in May of 2018. Blanding says the mayor's reform efforts are too little, too late. I was remiss if I didn't say, where were you back in 2018? Peter's name is now emblazoned on a sign at the Lee Monument traffic circle, where protesters were gassed nearly four months ago. Blanding says she's not formally endorsing anyone in the race, but is disappointed in both Gray and Stoney's inaction. You know, I
6: think it's clear to to many that they are not the individuals who should take on that strong, very important leadership role.
4: Undecided voters will likely be key in determining who should be the city's next mayor. They made up 30 percent of the people who participated in the Wasson Center poll. But if the numbers stay consistent, that will mean residents are willing to ride out the next four years with Stoney at the helm. Whitney Evans, BPM News.
2: A week after election day, a changed Supreme Court will hear a case that could reshape U.S. healthcare. The lawsuit brought by 18 states and backed by President Trump seeks to strike down the Affordable Care Act.
3: Coverage for roughly 20 million people is on the line and Republicans up for election are treading carefully during the pandemic. Ben Pavier has more.
6: Republican Nick Freitas' new office in suburban Richmond isn't designed for crowds, but here people are, masks on and off angling for yard signs and donuts, A campaign staffer scoots everyone outside where Freitas appears. Hey, thank you guys. The former Green Beret launches into an attack on Democrats and his opponent, freshman Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger.
1: Every single solution she has to a problem includes more government power at the expense of your liberty. And we're not putting up with it anymore in this country.
6: It's the kind of libertarian message supporters expect from Freitas. As a state delegate, he voted against Medicaid expansion in Virginia, which has insured over 450,000 people. He's attacked the Affordable Care Act, calling it a cancer. But in a recent TV ad, his campaign took a different tone.
1: When it comes to pre-existing conditions, one thing the military always taught me is nobody gets left behind, and they don't deserve to be left behind either.
6: Other Republicans in swing districts are running similar ads, but Democrats like Spanberger say they're being disingenuous. I just, I find it unbelievable Spanberger flipped a Republican seat in 2018 with a large focus on health care. She says Freitas' statement doesn't jive with his record.
4: And when he's had the option to vote to protect people with pre-existing conditions, specifically children with autism or children with hearing impairment, he has voted against protecting them.
6: There was some coverage for pre-existing conditions before the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, passed in 2010, but only if you got health insurance through your work. Karen Pollitz with the Kaiser Family Foundation compares it to a game of musical chairs.
4: When the music stops, if you're between jobs, uh, the individual market wouldn't catch you.
6: The ACA required that insurers cover those patients. It also created larger pools of insured people so that those with expensive conditions were balanced out by those who were healthier.
4: Um, I'm a cancer survivor. Most of the years, I don't cost my insurance plan anything. But in the years that I've had cancer, I was a six figure claims girl.
6: If the health law is struck down, Pollitt says the cost of plans would skyrocket. Medicaid expansion could be threatened. Insurance companies warn that repealing the ACA would wreak havoc on the U.S. healthcare care system. And with the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Pollitt says it's a real possibility.
4: Overall, I think it has um, ratcheted up the level of concern.
6: Nick Freitas says he would vote to get rid of the law with qualifications.
1: Yes, I want to see Obamacare gone. I also want to make sure that in the interim, as we're moving from one approach to a different one, I want to make sure that vulnerable populations are covered.
6: Freitas points to a Republican bill in the House that would protect pre-existing conditions if the ACA is repealed. It's an approach almost all health care experts say will be unaffordable without Obamacare subsidies. Elsie Cimarelli, a 78-year-old Freitas supporter, says she likes the GOP approach. She's unhappy with insurance her son got through the ACA to treat a disability. She trusts Republicans to come up with something better.
1: Trump is working on something. So I wanna see what that is. I'm sure it's gonna be good.
6: President Trump says he has a plan already, a claim he's made repeatedly since 2016. Ben Pavier, VPM News.
3: We also want to share with you some news you can use. Since there's been lots of discussion over the past few months about misinformation.
2: One nonprofit trying to help people determine what's true and what isn't is the News Literacy Project. VPM News intern Jacob Cortes spoke with Peter Adams, the group's senior vice president of education.
3: Adams says initially the term fake news had a much narrower definition.
2: When it sort of
8: re-entered usage in misinformation circles. It referred to a very particular kind of misinformation, misinformation that was mocked up to look like legitimate standards-based journalism, so a fake name for an outlet with a URL that went with it, often designed to just get clicks and ad revenue. But the term became applied more broadly by politicians and pundits and partisans to refer to uh, anything they wanted to dismiss or draw into question, even if it was fact-based And then on the part, I think, of some media using it too broadly to refer to misinformation generally. And most misinformation we see doesn't pretend to be news. So it kind of works to cover up more than it elucidates, if that makes sense.
5: Outside of that one very narrow type, what other kinds of misinformation are out there?
8: Well, the most common kind of misinformation is something that researchers at First Draft, uh, an organization that trains journalists to work with and address misinformation, have called false context. So basically any kind of context switch or trick of context is by far the most uh, common. So this can be a quote taken out of context, whether it's a video segment or an actual quote presented as text, photos taken out of context from another time and place entirely, For example, with the recent wildfires, there have been lots of pictures taken from years ago and surfaced and pushed on social media as being from 2020 when they were in fact not. So false context is by far the most common. Obviously, manipulated or doctored or Photoshopped images are also quite common. And then increasingly, Something that that I've taken to calling uh, sheer assertion. So just a claim posted to Facebook that provides no evidence whatsoever that somehow goes viral.
5: And could you talk a little bit about the News Literacy Project's work with younger people and how you go about educating them about misinformation and how to be a responsible consumer of news?
8: The centerpiece of our student offering is something we call the Checkology Virtual Classroom that lives at checkology.org. It's actually a teacher-facing site. So teachers register for Checkology, and then they can create sections that their students can join, and then teachers can create a lineup of lessons. So we have about 13 lessons right now on the platform with a variety of exercises and challenges that help students practice using real examples of information, practice everything from differentiating between different kinds of information, so news and opinion and entertainment and ads, even sneaky ads like branded content to learn more about the role of the First Amendment and a free press and a democracy, lessons about the standards of quality journalism. So that's more of what you would look for in terms of evaluating the quality of a, of a news piece that you're looking at. And then we have a verification center where students can learn actual skills that professional fact checkers use and practice those skills. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? One thing I would add, which might be helpful, is as people evaluate the trustworthiness of information they encounter. It's good to keep in mind that trustworthy information actually doesn't ask you to trust it. It shows you why
2: you should. That was Peter Adams, Senior Vice President of Education at the News Literacy Project. He spoke with VPM intern Jacob Cordes. To learn more about how to spot misinformation, head to vpm.org slash elections.
3: You've been listening to Virginia Decides, a special elections broadcast on VPM News. Special thanks to all of the reporters who contributed stories, including Patrick Larson, Whitney Evans, Ian Stewart, Charles Fishburne, Ben Pavier, and Jacob Cordes. The show
2: was executive produced by Sarah McCluskey. Special thanks to our traffic manager, Travis Pope, and Helen Barrington for editing assistance. Web and technical support was provided by David Strever. For Phil Lyles, I'm Benjamin Dolly.